Well, good morning. I'm Mike Bennett. I work here as one of the pastors. I focus on youth and young adults and many things in between. And um, it's good to see the kids helping us get into the Easter mood. During the week, I mentioned to one or two people, like, oh, I'm, I'm speaking on Palm Sunday. They said, Palm, are we already there? Is it Palm Sunday? It seems, that, it seems that's the way we are. We don't know how time passes. And, and as I looked and I began preparing, I realized I preached Palm Sunday 2020. So I sort of looked, what did I, what did I write? What were we thinking during that time? Because I remember coming in here, uh, you know, after those ominous days of mid-March, and the place was empty. And maybe in the whole life cycle of a, this church and probably every other church, has there ever been a Sunday where there hasn't been church uh, uh, at Easter time? So, uh, you know, in that sermon that I preached online, that was a new thing, I said, Easter 2020 is like none we can remember. But what if COVID-19 is perhaps making us uniquely ready to welcome Jesus' coming? Well, two years have gone by, and I sort of, I, I said, well, that's what I said in 2020. But here in two years later, we've had so much more, haven't we? We've had, you know, early after that, we had the racial reckoning, uh, the death of George Floyd. We then saw the awful truths unfold as residential school unmarked graves were revealed across Canada. In BC, we had an unfortunate front row seat to environmental change as floods ravaged the lower mainland. And now uh, we, we see wars, in, first in Afghanistan with the Taliban and now in Ukraine with Russia. We just see millions displaced and we will even see some of them show up in Vancouver. So again, we, we, Easter 2022, we have a world in trouble, continuing in trouble. And so perhaps like those early followers of Jesus on that first Palm Sunday, we want to cheer Jesus coming in. We want to shout Hosanna as he rides into our lives. And we want and we hope that this king can lead us to the peace and relief we so badly need. So today, as we look at that familiar passage, I actually want us to do two things. I want us to try and relate with their reaction and responses of those in that first crowd. Uh, welcoming Jesus that first Sunday. And then I want to finish by looking at what did Jesus really have in mind as he came riding in that those crowds, and maybe us, didn't have in mind. So as we begin, I, I, I'm going to be inviting us to use our imaginations. So, you know, youth, you're with us this morning, uh, young adults as well. You've got great imaginations, and that actually really helps us uh, as we look at who Jesus is. We meet him in that way. So imagine yourself in these crowds uh, around the area as Jesus has been ministering. So you've probably heard his teaching. You maybe even have seen him heal the sick and welcome sinners and felt scandalized by that. Maybe you even met Lazarus, who Jesus had just raised from the dead. And so Passover is coming, a very exciting time. And so maybe you have joined that crowd to come to Jerusalem and you're excited you're wondering if Jesus is coming, but you're troubled, all the stuff going on around you. So as you're imagining yourself as one of the, the people in that first Palm Sunday, I think we can, let's think of three groups, actually, as we think of the trouble that they might be imagining. So John, the writer of our, our passage today, if you have your Bible, you can keep it open to chapter 12. And... Um, John is describing the people of that time in A.D. 30 who lived under Roman occupation. 
John himself was there. He lived it, and he's writing as an eyewitness. So in their day, Rome was a foreign and cruel government in their land, and they controlled daily life, making it uncomfortable in all sorts of ways. There was high taxes that cut into the food that you needed for your family. Unfriendly Roman soldiers could push you around at any moment in the streets, and unfair rules governed their lives. So if you're in that crowd, you're wondering, God, if you're out there, can you save us? And so a second audience is the audience John is writing to, which is a dispersed Christian community about 60 years later in the AD 90s. After Jesus, and John is probably in Ephesus or in that area, an important date has passed in the life of the church, AD 70. Uh, And if you're familiar with any history of that time, that's the date when the Romans came in with force and crushed Jerusalem, tore down the temple, desecrating everything that it meant to be a Jewish community and and leaving people wondering. So uh, Jewish Christians like John and, and the early church are very unpopular. So if you're reading this letter in that, in that time, uh, what, what you're being told is that following the Jesus way puts your Jewishness in question. So he's writing to encourage them that their faith in Jesus is genuine and that their opponents of the faith are, are like those early opponents, the Pharisees, who are wrong about Jesus 60 years prior. So this is an audience under pressure, needing to know how to follow Jesus. And thirdly, John is writing for us today, all these years later. In fact, in chapter 20, verse 31, he says it so clearly. He says, I've written this so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah and you may have life in his name. So as we begin today, I'm inviting you to be reflective. How are you feeling troubled? How are you longing for God's saving presence to come sort of like those early followers were longing? And how are we all longing for God to rid us of the world's troubles and shelter us from their impacts. So I want to start by backing up in the passage from the very familiar triumphal entry. We're going to go back to chapter 11 and set the scene. So this comes right after Lazarus has been raised from the dead. So the the people of that community around Jerusalem and Judea, they're, they're in awe. Rumors about Jesus are spreading. You know, it's one thing to, to heal the sick and some lepers, but from the dead? I mean, people are in awe. So I'm just going to read from verse 45 of chapter 11. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is a man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And in that passage, the high priest then concludes that it is better for one man to die for the whole nation than the nation itself to perish. And that chapter ends with this. It says in verse 53, So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. How's that of a Passover preparation, a death plot? So therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. But 
the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. So here we are, Passover coming, people wondering whether Jesus would show up and an arrest warrant out for him. It's tense. It's very tense. So here we are now in chapter 12. Passover is six days away. What will Jesus do? Is he out in the wilderness wringing his hands with his disciples? Oh, no, I've really gotten myself in trouble now. No. In fact, he's very purposeful. He returns to the home of Lazarus before Passover where there's a meal in his honor and likely to celebrate Lazarus too. Jesus is like, let's go celebrate with my previously dead friend. Wouldn't that be amazing? And in, in, that, in that interesting meal, Mary, one of the disciples, anoints Jesus' feet with her hair using this expensive nard perfume. And the crowds begin to gather. The crowds are there to see Jesus and to, to probably see and touch Lazarus. There's excitement building about what this Passover could mean for all that's going on. And as always happens, gathering crowds always attracts political and religious attention. And in verse 10, it says this, So the chief priest made plans to also kill Lazarus. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing him. A writer and author, Gordon Fee, says it like this, The climactic sign by Jesus who offers eternal life is the raising of Lazarus, which, ironically, will lead to Jesus' death, where God's glory is fully revealed. So, here we are. Jesus is taking a very calculated risk at riding into Jerusalem, fully knowing that a, a death plot is, on, is afoot and is underway. So Passover week is arrived. Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem. And as we saw the kids doing, an adoring crowd rushes in, waving palm branches, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. So I did some research this week. I, w- I wanted to say, what, what's the excitement going on? What are, what are they saying? And what do they mean by what they're saying? So, and I love learning something new, and this passage really surprised me. I, I dipped into a, a book I love called The African Bible Commentary, written by scholars on that continent. And I, they, they enlightened me along this line. They said this, The Jewish use of palm branches was not normal for Passover. It was used at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is in a different part of their religious year. But in Judea, that part around Jerusalem, Palms had become more like a flag of freedom and nationalism. Because you see, uh, about 200 years prior, the Greek Empire had, had conquered that area. And, and in uh, 167 BC, uh, a leader called Antiochus Epiphanes captured Jerusalem, sacrificed a pig to the, to, to the god Zeus on the altar in the Jewish temple, desecrating it. Total national shame. But then in 164, and around the, that, those events, there's a, a man called Judas Maccabee led a revolt to reclaim Jerusalem and to restore the temple. And it's still celebrated today in Hanukkah. You hear about that near Christmas. So this, this event, this culturally important time, ushered in a hundred years of Jewish rule before then the, the Romans then seized control. 
So this era of Jewish national pride was still remembered at this time of Jesus, 200 years later, by the waving of palm branches. So welcoming Jesus that day with palms pointed to their hopes, likely, of welcoming Jesus as a liberator, like, like the Maccabean revolt. Jesus, who might free them from the Romans, just like those Maccabean soldiers. And they're going to boot out who booted out the Greeks. Maybe today they could boot out the Romans. Perhaps Jesus raising Lazarus had convinced the crowd, like, surely Jesus is going to lead them. He's got that kind of power. And so perhaps showing up with palm branches that day, they had their thoughts in their mind of enlisting in a kind of mob revolt during Passover. So I had not read that about this passage before, and it, honestly, it, it made me think of some other provocative flag-waving recently in our nation. So if I drove up today in my truck with a huge Canada flag out the back, and maybe one draped on the side, out the window, you'd probably think, wow, Mike's really into Canada Day. You probably wouldn't think that, right? You would know, or you would wonder, is is Mike, was Mike part of the, the Freedom Convoy, right? Isn't that, I still see trucks and cars, and you just wonder, like, oh, and I wonder, what's Canada Day actually going to be like this year? It's, so it's interesting that uh, something as innocent as a flag, or in this case, a palm branch, means something so loaded. So apparently in our country today, the Canada flag now has this layer of other meaning, a, a certain vision of freedom, a certain national dream by some. So when we return to our text, we wonder, as the crowd shouted Hosanna and waved their palms, and Hosanna means, give us salvation now. That's what they're saying. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. At a basic human level, it's very natural for an oppressed crowd, an oppressed nation, and for them to want Jesus to go on the mission of saving them and freeing them. It's very natural to want his immediate task to be freeing them from the Romans, and they want to follow him into battle. Having a nation at peace, putting an end to mistreatment are really good goals. But as we know, Jesus had a much larger mission in mind that would address those concerns. However, not in the way and in the timeline that they had that day. So if Jesus came strolling in here today, I wonder, what immediate task would we have for him? Political change? Uh, social reform? Public health improvements? Uh, economic boost? But would we submit to his agenda and his timing? Or would we naively, perhaps, wave some kind of nationalistic flag wanting Jesus to Hosanna, to save us now, rather than sitting and, and waiting for his deeper, longer-range plans, maybe to, to save us in a different way. So here we are, with all that tension in mind, and we're at verse 14. Into this loaded atmosphere, Jesus comes riding on a donkey. And as in a devotion that I listened to recently about Palm Sunday, it says this, for once... Jesus places himself at the center of attention. In almost every other story, he's doing something secretly or in the margins, but at, at this time, at this loaded moment, he's like right down the middle, center of attention. So why? 
And why like this? What does he want us to know? Had Jesus really wanted to lead a coup d'etat against the Romans, he would have, like others like him in the past, ridden in on a war horse. That was the symbol he should have gone for. But in verse 15, John writes that Jesus is coming on a donkey fulfilled a 550-year-old prophecy from Zechariah 9.9. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. Luke's gospel goes into much detail of Jesus sort of requesting the colt and going to the owner and bringing it and laying their jackets on it. And in our text in John, verse 16, he says, it says something like this, like, I was there and I didn't get it. It was only after he was glorified did we connect the dots, what had been written previously about the Messiah, that what Jesus was doing, what he was doing to fulfill before us that day. See, they, they and we, I don't think, could have predicted that Jesus had come to die under the Romans, not to conquer them by force. They couldn't see that Jesus modeled a very mysterious mission. He was a man of great power, God himself, but submitted to insults and mistreatment and death at the hands of unbelieving Jews and the pagan Romans. As the scripture says in Isaiah, he came to his own and they did not receive him. And so this particular passage, verse 17 and 18, ends, the crowd had seen Jesus the crowd who had seen Jesus raised Lazarus flocking to him and or ignoring the orders to have him arrested and the Pharisees themselves are exasperated and say, this is getting us nowhere. So then I, I pause, I pause and I wonder and I want to ask you, have you ever wanted something really badly that you knew or you thought you knew would meet your need? When I get it or, or when this happens, everything is going to be better. You probably even celebrated the coming of that thing, uh, though maybe now, looking back, you say, well, actually, I was naive. That didn't solve all my problems like I hoped. Because, again, it's normal and good for for something to remove the pain we're experiencing. But in my experience, maybe even yours, uh, like those crowds shouting, Hosanna, the object of my hopes often don't deliver to satisfy my needs in the immediate ways I usually want. You see, the the path back to the good life isn't so easily gained. So I experienced this in in various ways, uh, uh, starting around 2017. I was so happy and so glad that my wife, Clienza, got accepted into nursing college. It was amazing. We, We actually celebrated. So she qualified, she started, Uh, Nursing was going to be a new career for her, something she'd always dreamed about. It was going to supply our need, and it was going to give her purpose and meaning in a career. But in reality, you know, her her acceptance into the nursing program was followed by much more than we bargained for. It took way longer. It was way more difficult. It led to a lot of self-questioning in her. Why am I even doing this? Should I quit? Uh, marriage and family life were very difficult for these five years. Life's been tough at home. And then she, she graduates, and, and the job is much harder than maybe she, uh, she bargained for. Long, she's working right now. Long, difficult hours. It's hard work keeping people alive. And it's actually hard work even working with the people 
in that team. I recently met a guy, he'd done his PhD on this whole thing of uh, conflict in healthcare. I'm like, well, tell me more. It's like, okay, I, I've actually experienced, I'm hearing those stories at home, it's real. But ultimately, this thing we celebrated, this really good thing is good. It's sacrificial work that helps many people and it does supply our need. And I, if I had to, if we had time to chat, I would gather that probably it's similar to many of your careers. It's similar to your marriages and family. It's similar to your singleness. It's similar to your experiences of growing older, facing illness, disease, life. It's all harder than we want. It contains much more of a mix of good and bad. And Jesus' promise is fulfilled in our experience, his promise where he says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I am with you. So into our trouble, like in today's story, I think Jesus comes riding on a humble donkey. He enters our situation like he entered Jerusalem that day, having already won. You see, Jesus lived victorious life of resistance and endurance. He resisted Satan's temptation to take the easy road, that, and instead he took the long, hard road that led to Jerusalem. The Bible says he set his face like flint towards this goal. That day he knew he would not be riding for long on the cheers and, and the cheering of the crowd. You see, about a week from then, that same crowd was going to turn into an angry mob chanting for his death and crucifixion. But in that day, on that day, Jesus received their Hosanna. And he receives our Hosanna, no matter how naive or wrongly we even celebrate him. So I think a couple invitations as we get closer to the end. Jesus invites us to celebrate him with childlike faith, just like we saw the kids this morning celebrating Jesus. But he also invites us to keep watching, keep watch for what he's really about. Press in, persevere, stick with him when the party dies down and when others fall away from the faith. Newsflash, uh, I don't have to tell you younger people and people of all ages, it's pretty wildly unpopular to be Christian these days. Can we agree on that? At least at some level. And if you're young, I think you feel this even more because you see posts about it on social media in various forms so regularly. But I think the promise here and through the texts of Easter is if we stick with Jesus, he will ride humbly into your life. He will bring a gospel of good news that turns death into life, that brings unexpected restoration. He will bring you the peace you long for that no other method that you're, you or I are trying to accomplish on our own will which can't give it, he will bring you the peace that you're longing for. His entering on a donkey reminds me of a really favorite passage of mine from Matthew 11, 28, where it says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I am humble and gentle of heart. You will find rest for your souls. So, however clearly or unclearly you see Jesus today, he comes near to you. He's willing to do the work that will ultimately save you in the best way possible. So finally, as I said, we we're going to do two things. We've reflected on his entrance and what it meant. And, and so after this entrance to the cries of Hosanna, I want to actually look ahead for a moment 
ahead of our passage to what Jesus had in mind and what was his goal for the crowd that day and his goal for us today. So I'm going to read a little bit from starting from verse 23 of chapter 11. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. So in this short bit, just after the triumphal entry, Jesus clarifies, I think, two rewards of the gospel that he is about to offer through his sacrificial work. Verse 26 says it this way, Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant will also be. Where is he? Where has he always been, and where is he going? He's to the Father. So being with the Father is where Jesus is. And I think that's, that's true and can be true for us in our Christian experience today. As we live this life in the same sacrificial way Jesus did, we are ushered in to the presence of the Father. And it's true later. Uh, sometimes we skip ahead to later. It will be true later in that fullest way when heaven and earth are restored and, and reunited, when we're with the Father in heaven, heaven and earth forever and ever. So that's the first thing, being with the Father. That's what he's about. And secondly, it says this, my Father will honor the one who serves me. So being honored by God the Father seems to be this thing Jesus is pressing the crowd and us to look forward to. But I want you to note it's actually conditional. He says, whoever serves me is going to follow me and, and receive all that. So from a human perspective, this message, this Jesus path, I think, doesn't look great. It looks like being rejected. It looks like dying like a cursed person. And similarly, Jesus' followers then and now will be viewed by the world from this human perspective. By following Jesus, you will not receive honor from the world. As I said earlier, there's, I think, currently lots of shame by identifying as a Christian. And I don't know, all, of, all ages and maybe younger, and because of what you're seeing, you probably feel this keenly. Uh, the church, in many ways, is being canceled by those many people advertising the past crimes and current crimes of the church, the abuse, the colonialism. So into that, I want to say yes. Let's, let's actually join with the world for the calls, to the calls for those things to be changed and, and, and brought to light. But... Then, let's not stop there and, and sort of think God has abandoned us and, and this whole thing of his church is, is in destruction. No, let's actually double our efforts to truly follow Jesus rather than adhere to just a surface level of Christianity because I actually think that's, that's how the church got to its places and gets to its places of all these crimes. It's somehow adhering at a surface level to this thing called Christianity on the surface rather than following Jesus deeply in a way that transforms and brings that eternal life. But no matter how good we experience it or how, how truly you do follow him, we have, to, we have to 
prepare ourselves because uh, to follow Jesus, like I said, it, it just attracts shame. To say others in your community, your friends should follow Jesus, deny any other identities as primary and to follow Jesus as primary, it's a recipe for outright hatred. And maybe in the past you were thought of, well, those guys are just weird. But I think today, it's actually, you're gonna be seen as harmful and even evil for following Jesus in this way and inviting others to follow him in this primary way. So I think the only thing we can do is hold on to the reward Jesus offers, that we will be with him with the Father and that we will receive the Father's honor. And we saw, this, we saw this happen for Jesus. It says it in Philippians, that Jesus, through what he did, is exalted by God and given the name that's above every other name. And we, and hopefully you've experienced this in some way, but Jesus' servants, we are exalted by God too. But most often, that comes in very secret and quiet ways. Maybe it's, maybe it's in your devotion time or personal worship. You feel the presence of the Father. You feel his affirmation. Sometimes in, in situations, you do get a thanks from someone you've served, and, and that adds to the honor God wants to give you. So here we are in Easter 2022. I actually want to propose that the gospel is still good news, that this relationship Jesus shows us with suffering, dying, and rising is still the path that Jesus uses to lead us to eternal life, that life both now and later, the life we all long for. So I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up as we finish. And um, my hope is as we begin to worship, um, that, uh, yeah, you guys can come on up. As we begin to worship, they, may this be a time of prayer, a time where you can come and be really honest for how you're feeling troubled that you can come with your prayers of longing for God's saving presence, that you can, uh, you can see Jesus' sacrificial willingness and, and you'd be willing to follow him into that union with God no matter what the world says about you and about your faith.